Hello, everybody, and welcome to Clinically Thinking, the podcast for clinical psychologists by clinical psychologists. I am Dr. Lisa Chandler, and it's my pleasure today to bring to you Professor Robin Young. Robin's going to speak to us today about the female autistic phenotype and much, much more. But first, a little bio about Robin and strap yourself in, folks, because it goes on a little while, such as the level of her achievements. Robin's interest in autism began while studying savants as part of her PhD in savant syndrome in 1992. This work became the subject of an ABC documentary titled Uncommon Genius. She went on to develop a screening tool for autistic disorder suitable for use in children as young as 12 months of age. This tool, known as the Autism Detection in Early Childhood, operationalizes early behaviours indicative of autism spectrum. Together with colleagues at Flinders Uni, she has developed a parent resource to help support and develop these early behaviours that may impact a child's outcome if development is delayed. Her continued work in the forensic arena and the interaction between autistic folk and the criminal justice system led to the book Crime and Autism Spectrum Disorder, Myths and Mechanisms. She has also published a book on preparing autistic children for school. Professor, Professor Young has prepared more than 80 reports for court where persons with autism have been involved as either victims or perpetrators of crime. She's appeared in court as an expert witness in South Australia on more than 15 occasions and twice in New South Wales. She's worked in private practice two days a month as an autism diagnostician and she's also currently an autism diagnostician trainer. She's appeared as a keynote speaker in numerous autism conferences throughout the world and has written more than 80 journals related to autism. Her interests these days include autism and crime, autism and eating disorders, autism and trauma, and autism and the female presentation. She currently serves on the Professional Advisory Board of Autism SA and has recently been elected to the Autism Advisory Board of Australia. Her expert opinions often sought throughout the media and she's also currently Professional Accreditation Lead in the School of Psychology at Flinders University where she is involved in research, teaching and postgraduate supervision. Um, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Welcome indeed. Robert and I go uh, way back, um, whoa, a 1980 something, I'll probably leave it there because that's a, it's a long time it's ago. It's aging it? us, Lisa. Uh, it yes. is aging us. I think undergraduate psychology days, mm-hmm. so I remember those days well. Tell me how you got into this area. Okay. Well, even going into psychology is because I didn't get into medicine. Ah, okay. So my plan was that I was going to do a science degree and then do medicine, try and transfer over to medicine. And that was harder back in the day, wasn't it? There wasn't any postgraduate courses, yeah, for example. Yeah, no, there was no postgraduate yeah. or anything like that. So I then um, took a year off, went mm-hmm. to Denmark for a year, came back, was really interested in languages, even though I'd done maths one and two, physics and chemistry at yep. school, and was enrolled in a science degree. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden I threw French in there. No, oh, nice. And that became an arts degree because I had psychology as well, which oh. was considered an art. So, And I really, I just picked up psychology, no idea what it was. Yes. So I did that and um, no interest in becoming a psychologist and then realised after I finished my honours degree in psychology that 
There was I did no something jobs. with it. I, know. <laughs> I, I walked the planet trying to get a job and couldn't get one. And Ted Nettlebeck had offered me a job as a research assistant. Uh-huh. And um, it, which was going to start in March. So we finished uni in November. So I tried to get a job for five months. Um, walking the streets, couldn't get one. Yeah, back in that, those days, you couldn't... Couldn't get a job. The only thing you could get was an honours degree in yeah. those days would have been like... A, some people went to private practice, didn't they? Yeah, but, well, I had nothing. And yeah. I, I had a... Um, uh, you know, worked at Pizza Hut. And right. I had a one shift at an Indian restaurant. I got sat. Um, <laughs> so I couldn't pour wine. Like I really was useless. So I, I took, came back with my tail between my legs and took the job with Ted. But his work always really stimulated me. And that okay. was the area of savant syndrome. Yes. So I worked for him for a couple of years as a research assistant. And then I thought, well, actually, I could be doing my own PhD mm. in this in, in someone else's research. So. I then decided to apply for a scholarship, got a scholarship to do my PhD, and then I was restless being in Adelaide and doing my PhD because I was working with savants, and mm-hmm. the most famous savant probably in the world is Trevor Teo, who is oh, here yes. in, in, um, in um, Blackwood. He was one of my participants in my study, and, and then I travelled around Australia um, meeting savants, but predominantly a lot of these savants or high-functioning people... Um, were had these skills had autism as well so I found myself in autism oh, centres I spent some time at the Mansfield Autistic Centre um, and just became very interested in yes. autism and then I to get more pl- participants I went across to the US and spent um, a year and a half in the pervasive developmental disorder unit at across in California in Sta- at Stanford um, and in return for them providing me with participants for my study, they um, um, they trained me in the autism diagnostic interview and the ADOS. Oh, so, so when I came back, back it, was, it was back in 1992 when yeah. we first started getting an idea that autism was genetically based. Back then we didn't really know. Mm. So I was working with multiplex families where there was two or more children with autism in the mm. family and I was doing the autism diagnoses and with all family members, irrespective of whether they had a diagnosis or not, but going through the those um, tools with them to see, you know, how many of them in the family actually had autism mm-hmm. uh, and including the parents. Mm-hmm. And then I um, then travelled around America uh, finding my savants for my study. So you could, so clearly it, it got your interest and you were clearly... It got my interest. It got yeah. my interest. And when I came back, um, I was approached by a guy, by Billy Tao, um, Trevor's yeah. dad, okay. who was a paediatrician. And he said to me, we really need to be diagnosing autism earlier. And I said, it's interesting you should say that because one of the multiplex families that I'd worked with, they'd come in and the the four-year-old was coming in for the diagnosis, Mm. but I was looking at the six-month-old thinking, okay, there is something about this child and what is it? Because back then the criteria was, you know, lack of language, those sorts of things. And, of course, you don't pick that up till two or three. Mm -hmm. So that was when I developed the ADEC, which is the Autism Detection in Early Childhood, which identified 16 core behaviours that if a child wasn't presenting within the early years, they were a high likelihood of going on to develop okay. autism. Wow. So initial, my initial research was really in early screening and early detection. Mm. And then as I've got older, my clients have got older, <laughs> and I've become, done the work in the forensic in the court system. What led you into the forensic area? Because I can see that, you know, you did your, your, your PhD and you got mm. a job at Flinders and, you, you know, they rest yeah. history. But what about the uh, forensic stuff? Well, 
my field's always been autism. So I was approached by a lawyer on one okay. occasion where there was an autistic woman um, who had... Um, well, the, the case is the Lara Eye case. Mm. So um, she had had a baby and then left the baby on the pavement um, and there was some conjecture about whether the person... Um, whether the baby had um, been born dead or whether mm. the baby had died... Mm. Uh, and also there was a discussion about whether the person, whether Lara had autism. Mm. So I was invited in to do a diagnostic assessment for her mm. and, and an IQ test and all mm. those sorts of things and presented in court. And then gradually it's just built because okay. more and more autistic people have found themselves. So um, in, the, in, the legal, in the legal system, yeah. I need to be very clear here that uh, an autistic person is no more likely to commit a crime than a non-autistic person. Uh-huh, but if they have an interaction with the criminal judicial system, yes. they are twice as likely to for that to progress to um, to be charged. That's and then yeah. So it's about that initial interaction um, and that's what we need to educate autistic people on about not speaking to police. Yeah. Um, you know, not saying things because they may be misinterpreted and, and, and so forth. So the- and just to be clear here, that matter that matter that you raise is um, all in the public domain, yes. so there's no problem with them. I'm sure there's no problem with you mentioning that. Let's put that out there for our listeners. I'd really like to focus today on the female phenotype, if you like, or women in autism. I'd really like to focus there today. Um, as a clinician working mostly with adults, uh, I see lots of folk, autistic folk, and I like to think of myself as representing uh, the every clinician, if you like. And so I'm hoping with your expertise, myself and the listeners might go a little way to understanding a bit more about what it's like to have autistic folk in the room in terms of diagnosis, assessment and you know, and treatment concerns. Do you think you might be able to help us a bit with that today? I hope so. <laughs> I think you will. All right, let's start. So look, I'm thinking when I was training um, Autism was generally associated with little boys who seemed really smart when they were little and they got to about four, seemingly, and then they gradually regressed and they lost their language and they had lots of repetitive uh, behaviours. And, of course, that that uh, stereotype has really changed. Can you tell me what has happened over the years that's shifted our understanding? Mm-hmm. It's interesting you mentioned the regression because that's a real that's a rarity that okay. very rarely happens even okay. in boys. Right. Um, but what does happen mm. is that they don't progress; they tend to plateau. So we used to the ratio when I first started doing research in the area was about four to one, four boys to one girl. Mm-hmm. If there was a cognitive impairment, the ratio was closer to one to one. But in the more, for want of a better word, higher functioning, but without a cognitive disability or without cognitive impairment, we the ratio was around about 14 to 1 in the what we used to refer to as Asperger's syndrome. Yeah, right. So we, and that was of boys to girls. So we didn't really think about girls when people were coming in to see us as having autism. And often their presentation mm-hmm. They were overwhelmed by other things, maybe um, uh, anxiety, depression, eating disorders or other manifestations possibly of the autism, Mm -hmm. which sort of, I guess, primed the person working with them to think more along those lines than autism. So we weren't really primed like we were with boys to think, oh, that's autism. Yeah, I get Mm -hmm. it, yeah. Okay, and so 
what's cha- what else has changed over the years so that now you know there's more it seems to be more research in the area of autism girls uh, we're thinking more about the priming maybe that's changed but how has that changed yeah it has i mean in a recent study that we've just um, uh, put out for publication where we've looked at um, clinicians response to that people clinicians are still not very confident in diagnosing women with autism and girls with autism and obviously we're using the binary gender here with males versus females yeah and and certainly um, females who you know cisgender females who present um may present with a very classically autism phenotype, which we more commonly see in the boys. Mm -hmm. But we also see boys present with more of the female presentation as well. So we're being a bit crude here by defining it, you know, in this binary way. But there certainly is a female presentation which differs from the way boys present. And it differs because there seems to be in this, this phenotype, this presentation, much more... Um, awareness even from the early days there's more pretend play there's more imagination in this group so they seem to be able to see what's going on and mimic and then start to camouflage more so this is the girls this is is the girls right yeah so well boys there's some boys that can do this as well but we see this more commonly in the girls or the females yeah um that they then look um they look around, they, they copy, you know, the behaviour of others. So I've had parents say to me, I can tell who they've played with that day when they come home because they are taking on that person's persona a bit. So what happens is they learn to camouflage quite nicely, but that comes at a huge emotional cost. Right, right. So what we find is they're looking around, they're, they're, they're copying, mimicking the behaviours of others. Their behaviours is very scripted. Um, it's learned behaviour. Um, and they learn to mask it pretty well, um, which is unfortunate because then they come home and where they can be who they want to be. And often we have these meltdowns or implosions when they come home. So do you think that, and if we could just talk about, talking about children, I'm thinking boys mm. and girls, and do you think that there is like a sex difference in, does the literature show this, whether there is a sex difference in the presentation of uh, you know, of autism in, in little people and young people. Yeah, look, we, we might need to go back a step Please about do. autism versus autistic disorder and Asperger's because it's a little bit unfortunate that, you know, in 1994, Asperger's got introduced to the DSM criteria. So we started before that, we were talking more about your um, Canna's original definition of autism. So um, your stereotype that you described, a a young boy um, flapping, rocking, spinning, pacing, lining things up, Uh often having sort of um, special skills in particular areas and so forth. So that was our, um, I guess, our idea of what autism looked like. And then in 1994, Asperger's got introduced to the DSM. It was interesting because Lorna Wing first wrote back in 1981 about Asperger's um, because it was Asperger's wrote his work at the same time as as Canada did back in the night during World War Two. Hmm. So they were writing really about the same thing. And so Lorna Wing never really intended for Asperger's to be a, a separate diagnosis, but it was. And, and so from 1994 to 2013, when the DSM-5 came out, 
we had a, 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 a probably a phenotype of autism, which was your more high functioning. There wasn't the language issues and so mm -hmm. forth. But we started to realise that they were probably the same condition because we were seeing them in the same family and they didn't seem to be etiologically distinct. Mm. But the research also suggests that genetically um, what might occur, you know, in terms of we do see kids with eating disorders, girls with eating disorders and autism in the one family, that they might have some genetic underpinning that's common and the gene may manifest itself in autism in boys and an eating disorder or something else in, in girls. That's interesting. It is interesting. Um, I, I don't think it's the case. I think it's um, autistic girls that are misdiagnosed with eating disorders. So if I give you a classic one, or they may have both. Yeah. So I'm thinking of a, a, a young person, and I'll obfuscate the story a little bit so sure. that we don't breach any confidentiality here. But she was um, in an eating disorder unit, and she'd ordered, a, let's say, a donut and an orange juice. And the donut um, didn't arrive when the orange juice arrived. Now, part of her was thrilled because she didn't have to eat the donut. Okay. But part of her was very, very angry. Where is this donut? Um, and it wasn't until we then decided, you know, after lengthy interviews and so forth, that she also had autistic disorder, autism spectrum disorder that she realised that there was these two competing things. There was the autism um, telling her, this is the rule, we yeah. need to have that donut and yeah. it's not there. Yeah. But the eating disorder saying, well, I'm glad, now I don't have to eat that um, donut. So that, for her, she said it was an epiphany. She now started to understand how these two diagnoses were competing with each other. Okay. But sometimes, you know, people with autism and particularly girls, um, if you think of the B1 and B2 criteria, which are, you know, having things in order, rigidity in thought, rigidity in thinking, sometimes, or even obsessive interest, which is your B3 criteria, that can lend itself to, um, you know, calorie counting. And it's not the body image issues that you have in your typical anorexia or other eating disorders. It's more akin to... The rigidity in thinking and the obsessiveness that we see in autism and therefore the treatment needs to be different. Um, so it seems that teasing out, you know, careful diagnosis, careful, careful diagnosis is important to tease out whether there's one diagnosis or two in the case of eating disorder and autism or I'm wondering whether uh, an eating disorder might be a, a manifestation of something else. Uh, this is where I'm not really sure. Yeah. My knowledge about autism is not definitely not as good as yours. So help me out here. What might it be? Well, look, I don't know that we necessarily have the answers yeah, right, to that. Yeah. Um, we certainly do know that people with autism have a higher incidence of co-occurring conditions such as anxiety, depression and eating disorders. And, and so ADHD, I'm and hearing. ADHD, yeah. That's an interesting one yeah. um, because back in the old DSM-4 criteria, if you had autism, it trumped the ADHD diagnosis. Is that so? Okay. Yeah, in the hierarchy. You only get one, the did axis. you? Yeah, yeah. So if you had autism um, in the hierarchical system of the old, remember the axis? And yeah, absolutely. Like yeah. Um, you know, autism prevailed, if yeah, you like. got it. So we didn't do the, the, the dual diagnosis of attention deficit hyperactivity disorder or... Um, ADD it was then 
So there's a lot of people out there who have autism that have co-occurring ADHD yes. that have never been diagnosed for that reason because they prevent okay. they came you know they've come to the party late or they were diagnosed before um, yes. the driving system yeah, came right. in, so, <laughs> if you like. Um, so we're getting a lot of autistic people now coming back that go actually the diagnosis of ADHD may be quite helpful for me because. Um, the treatment that I might be getting with CBT or schema therapy or whatever treatment they're having or supports that they're getting for autism um, is not helping the ADHD part of um, of them. Yes. So they're looking for that diagnosis so they then might consider some sort of medication. Well, that's very, very interesting. Uh, I didn't I didn't realise at all that that was a, tr- a trumping system, so to mm. speak, and that does go some way to helping to, for me to understand why this is... Uh, secondary diagnosis for ADHD or perhaps other diagnoses being sought. What about um, autism in the room for I'm, I'm, I'm going to say girls um, or females but I'm actually thinking more more adults because for example I see more adults and mm. uh, um, and because I know I'm seeing in my rooms uh, females who in the old days, I would have thought, you know, you're a bit quirky, and I wouldn't have thought necessarily about autism or whether it was a helpful thing, a diagnosis or not. I just wouldn't have thought it. It wouldn't have thought it was necessary to make the diagnosis. But these days, I have lots of clients, and I think, well, you have autism, um, not diagnosed, never diagnosed, and often they're coming because their kids have. They're wondering because their kids are being diagnosed mm. now, and there's a couple of questions there, I guess, but. Can you speak to what that might look like in the room? Is that question a bit long? No, no, I know what you're saying. So just if we just go back to, yes, a lot of women are presenting now because their children have been diagnosed and they go, oh, hang on, this was me as a child. Um, And and this all sort of makes sense now. This might be why I'm having issues around socialisation or I haven't been able to maintain friendships or it gives them a lot of clarity. So so it's an interesting thing because when you diagnose a child, often the the parents have a a sense of fear and foreboding of what the child's life is going to be like through lack of understanding and and they shouldn't be ashamed of that. Now, there's a, you know, there's certainly a, a push and, and, you know, a positivity around autism, which I certainly embrace. But that can also be a little bit toxic. You know, that parents are allowed to feel, um, you know, a little bit of grief, you know, for, for this diagnosis. Yes. I think that's okay. That they might think, okay, what's my life going to be like for? Uh, for my child growing up, is it going to be more difficult, you know, and, and so forth. And that comes with education and so forth, that they feel a bit more supported and, yeah. and you know, embrace the diagnosis and learn how to, to manage that. But it's a different story when you're diagnosing adults. For many adult females or both um, sexes, there is a sense of uh, relief. Okay. Now I get it. Mm. You know, it makes sense. It this makes, makes sense. It makes sense. All to that me. I've been through makes sense. All that I'm, you know, it makes sense. Mm. Um, so, but you also get. It's interesting. You're saying that way. I'm seeing a lot of you seeing a lot of people coming in 
and you're going, oh, I recognise the autism. Yes. I'm seeing a lot more people because all I do is autism. Yeah. A lot of women coming in that might have experienced trauma and so forth. And, and we know that all of the trauma can mimic, you know, it leads to social isolation, it leads to difficulties with friendships, mm. it might, you know, rigidity and things. It, mm. it can translate very much to looking like an autism presentation. So women coming in believing that they have autism when, in fact, I don't believe they do. So oh, because of the... Because the traumas they say yep. experience, and that makes me think about um, the vulnerability. Uh, we'll come back to the question at hand, but the the, uh, the vulnerability that autistic folk have to trauma. Uh, I just read a report recently, and I think I commented that perhaps if the autism had been diagnosed younger, mm. that uh, she might have had some support and so forth that would have prevented her. Hopefully, from the trauma that she's experienced, but that's a whole other can of worms. It is, I suppose, it is isn't a it? big can of worms, yeah. but it's a really important one. We're doing a lot of work at Flinders at that at the moment, where we're looking um, in the under threes, doing a differential diagnosis of autism versus trauma. Okay, and we're also looking at autistic mm. adults' perception of trauma as well, because I think that sometimes um, one of the biggest um, therapeutic areas that people have in trauma is social support when they're going through it and you yes, think that yes. if an autistic person is lacking that yes, social support indeed. or also for them what might be considered traumatic might not be a dsm-5 definition of what trauma is mm -hmm. but for them it is extremely traumatic and therefore it gets minimalized a bit by the people that they do speak mm. to so we're looking at you know what might be a dsm-5 idea of trauma for an autistic person and and this this might i'm not trying to um, but, you know, a little person, if they've come to school and their teacher's not there and they haven't been forewarned about that um, and there's a relief teacher or something there, that can be extremely traumatic. Now, I know it's not a near-death experience, mm. but for an autistic person that can be really traumatic and we don't want to minimise the impact that that has on them. Um, and similarly, I don't think there's very few clients that I've seen in my life uh, who with autism that haven't experienced bullying at school and that bullying at school, you imagine going into work every day and being, you know, bullied, ab abused, you know, constantly, relentlessly, day in, day in, day, you know. For being it, a different kid or being, being a different kid yeah, and it right. takes its being toll, weird or whatever you know, you know kids and I've had so many kids just yeah. think, I've just got, we've just got to get you through school. Yes. Because what they've experienced during that time has been absolutely relentless. Yes, well, maybe there's a DSM-6 there or something yeah. which will shift the, yeah. <laughs> the diagnostic criteria. Well, it, it's interesting because the DSM is going that more towards us, not away from categorical mm. um, to more dimensional um, explanations or diagnostic systems. So maybe that's the future, you know. Well, it certainly is with the NDIS. So You're right. that's going to be... Back in 2010, I was involved in the setup of the NDIS and one of my jobs, jobs or my role description was looking at eligibility. Yes. And I argued back then that it should never be diagnostic driven. Mm. It should always be capacity. You know, what's the person? Because, you know, we're talking about autism here mm -hmm. and we can have an autistic person who would classify as what we refer to as level three, which is requiring very substantial support. So they might be... Um, 
you know, non-verbal, have an intellectual disability and may require support 24-7. Mm-hmm. And then we have your professors at universities, you know, mm-hmm. walking around the physics departments where the autism is having very limited impact, probably a positive impact mm. because they, you know, have the obsessive interest that allows them to sit and, and, and develop their skills and, and so forth. So, you know, for them, autism can be a very positive thing. And I think we need to be aware of that um, and... and so we don't want to sort of say, oh, you've got autism and therefore you'd be eligible for NDIS funding because there's people right. that obviously don't need it who have autism. Yes. And every time we publish a paper, we we get to um, we get a lot of feedback and they're either saying, look, I have autism, I've lived with it all my life and I don't want your support, I don't want therapy, I don't want, you know, and, and heaven forbid we say the word intervention, which is, is very much taboo in this area yeah. now. So, but that's fine, but the DSM-5 criteria clearly says that it's having a significant impact upon your quality of life across several domains. So if it's not, you either don't have autism or you don't meet the diagnostic criteria, but the diagnostic criteria definitely say that it's having a significant impact and it's a negative impact upon your quality of life across various domains. And I think we need to be respectful of that for some people with autism it is um, causing issues and they do want support and they should be supported in seeking that support and not feel embarrassed or ashamed or um, for, for doing so. I wonder whether we're just sort of veering into this area that I find a bit tricky to understand. You probably, I'm sure you know more about it than I do when you talk about being the people, some people who want support, uh, whether they be the parents or kids or adults, um, and they see their autism as, you know, like a disability. It's, mm. a, it's a, to use a DSM language, it's a disorder, whereas there is another group of folk, um, or perhaps more ideologically driven, um, who talk about a whole, it's, you know, autism is a condition, it's another way of being. I just read, I read a couple of reports and I've read some articles where they really spell that out, that we're going to be, agenda, uh, uh, what is it, identity driven, you mm-hmm. know, and autism is, we don't talk about a person with autism, we talk about, the autistic person and I'm a bit confused by these two mm. camps yeah. apparently can you help me and my listener understand yeah look I think that without, without any judgment either yeah. just understanding the no. two camps a bit and there are two camps and we need to be aware of that and respectful of those you know Simon Bury wrote a paper about whether it's identity first or person first yeah, language right. and mostly now in our research we talk about an autistic person whereas Radio. 10 years ago it was a person with autism uh-huh. Although they're now suggesting that when we're talking about children, because they don't identify necessarily as autism, we should say a child with autism. Yeah. But what I find is when we write something that goes out to the media, we tend to be ups- upset the people that want identity first language. And, yeah, you know, right. So um, I think we just need to be respectful. There are some people with autism that, you know, really want to be referred to as autistic person yeah. um, but there's others that prefer it's a person with autism and yeah. we just need to re- be respectful of that and also recognize that one you know one hat does not fit all yes and that and we just need to be non-judgmental and accept what that person yeah. particularly wants it's I, just like gender you know whether they want yeah. he she they yeah that individual person might want they mm, will go with that go whatever with that. they choose I guess I'm just imagining a kid, you know, in the playground. They wouldn't be saying, "I'm with, I have autism," or maybe they would, but say, "I'm autistic." Yes. You know, and and I read in an article where someone was arguing very strongly for that notion of uh, autism. I'm autistic rather than I have autism. They're using throwing on the example of 
being gay, you know, mm. oh, and it's like they don't say, I mm. have I have homosexuality. Yes. <laughs> you yes. know, I'm, I'm gay or I'm a homosexual. But remember, we couldn't, 20 years That's ago, different. we couldn't use the word gay. And I right. remember once, 20 years ago, my mum saying, oh, I think he's autistic. And I'm like, oh, my God, you can't say that, mum. Yeah, you right. Know? Whereas now, that is what we say. So yeah. I, th- I think it's about um, just being respectful yeah. that people have different opinions. Yes. And, and we just try to be respectful. And, and one thing is in all of our research that we do at Flinders, we always have people involved who have lived experiences. Mm. And it's important to have a, um, a number of those people because everyone's lived experience is going to be different. Indeed. Let's think about um, so adult females, women in the room who uh, some of us have probably have in the past thought there's just a bit of quirkiness and a few problems here but nothing terribly much to be concerned about now thinking is this autism I don't know if other people do but I now routinely ask I've got a couple of questions that I routinely screen for autism and ADHD just because I just think it's you know wise these days mm. but I wonder whether you can help us with some wisdom around making sure that we or reducing the likelihood of missing mm. um, these folk in our in our rooms with adults, any any crazy clever questions you've got that you might that might help the average clinician who's trying to do the right thing here, yeah, and uh, uh, minimise the chance of missing that diagnosis. Yeah, look, there are sort of little screening tools. That yeah, you can absolutely. Do. And and I guess one of the issues um, around screening is do you screen for all sorts of conditions and. I, you know, things like um, I don't do personality inventories on my autistic clients, particularly, if, you know, if it's a court matter or something yeah. like that, because they get over it, identified as being depressed and anxious because, you know, they'll say, I'm socially isolated. So you need to be, a lot of these tools are not specific to autism. Yes. If you use these non-autistic tools among autistic population, you're going to over-diagnose them with all these other co Okay, that's interesting. That they don't have. So I ne- you need to be very careful on using those inventories among the autistic people. But um, I guess because I'm in the luxurious position, usually when people come to see me, autism has been speculated. Yeah, so, pretty clearly, um, yes. Yeah, so it, it, it's interesting. But um, when I, um, you know, I've, I've had people referred before for other reasons, and clearly when they've been presenting, I've, one person had an eating disorder and they were referred to me and that's not my field no. so I agreed to do the initial session with a person who was skilled in that and mm-hmm. I would do the first one and we would work together and then nice. that person would take over mm. and halfway through the interview it was very apparent to both of us this person had autism and clearly that was why the clinician had sent them to me but didn't want to tell the person and wanted me okay. to break the news and I think <laughs> then one of the things that I that I try to do a little bit if I'm just in a general conversation with in the diagnosis is I'll I'll use some metaphors I might throw some sarcasm in there and see how um, it lands and just see how it lands right um and see whether they are on the same page or not mm. that's interesting that's a good tip so uh, the metaphors are generally not well understood no, no. and we'll on the good joke and it will fall flat yes yes essentially okay yeah and obviously, you know, sometimes I've sort of said, oh, I meant that to be funny. And the person goes, oh, I didn't know this was the environment for that. And I get that, that it's not necessarily the environment where yes. you can laugh. But also, I think a non-autistic person might appreciate that it can be an environment. You know, so yeah. it, it starts a conversation okay. along those lines. Yeah. But it goes back, when we talked about the differential diagnosis between Asperger's and autistic disorder, 
um, Asperger's, there was no language impairment mm. um, and there was a triad of impairment. We, had, we talked about the language impairment, we talked about the social difficulties and we talked about the ritualistic and repetitive behaviours. In the autism spectrum disorder reclassification, we've now combined the communication and language and social all together. Mm. So we realised that there might not be any specific issues with language, in fact, often quite... Um, uh, well-developed language, but often it can be pedantic, it can be non-communicative, um, not detecting sarcasm. There can be a lot of communication difficulties that um, it, it's not the language per se, but it is that social communication. Social. And I know um, as we speak in, in times gone by, a client, one particular client comes to mind who are, I thought has social anxiety disorder, but mm. they diagnosed that, and then when her... Son was diagnosed with autism. We went, oh, okay, yeah, maybe there's uh, something going on here that I've missed. And in fact, she went away and had an, an assessment for autism, and that sort of shifted the way I saw her and and where some of the way we well, not much in some ways. It mm. just opened up new yeah. ways of thinking. Uh, yeah, I, I mean that in a positive way. It just yes. helped her, and it, it helped me, and it, which leads me to some questions about misdiagnosis and but before we do I want to just go back to the screening thing because um, we use the mini screen you may have mm. heard of the mini mm. and we use the mini but we've augmented it just with a couple of questions about ADHD and um, autism and I'm, and I'm and I'm now thinking if, if I have one that comes back when they're all ticked yes or lots of them are ticked then mm. possibly that's a good indication that we need to be looking yes. further down for, for autism yes. is a possibility yeah and another little tip too is if the person has had difficulties, you know, in the binary, like... Um, yes, right. Doing yes, no, yeah, whatever it yeah. is, responses. Certainly is. Um, and they've written a lot of comments yes. next to them. Yes. That, to me, is often an indicator. Good, um, that's helpful. So, um, yeah, and the AQ is a really quite a good screen. It's 50 items, but people can go online and, yep. and do that, and that's quite sensitive. So that's the next level down, I guess. Yeah. I'm thinking, you know, someone yes. walks in and you just want something and then from mm. there you've got mm. questions about mm. the AQ. Mm. And since we're here, well, the SRS is pretty good. Yeah, um, yeah. Um, I like the SRS and it's it, it's sort of good because it has different norms for male and females in the younger yeah. groups. Yeah. Um, so it's a bit more sensitive to autism and specific to that. But the AQ is, I mean, these tools are quite specific. So if someone was at home listening to this and thinking, yeah. oh, maybe it is... You know, if you're going to go online and do one of these online tools, do something that's validated, and the AQ50 would be the one that I would suggest. All right, interesting. Okay. I wanted to talk about again misdiagnosis for a minute. If we if we could, we're talking about differential diagnosis, eating disorders, social anxiety. Uh, what else? OCD. Disorder. Yeah. Uh, what are the other big ones that? We need to be careful and, and to make sure we're getting it right. Yeah, I think a lot of people um, present in the younger years with sensory processing disorders yeah, right. or um, auditory processing disorder. They're the two common ones that they've they've hung on to for you know maybe three or four years, and they get to maybe seven or eight and think actually there's something a little bit more than just the sensory issues mm -hmm. or the auditory processing issues. Okay. Um, so they're they're the ones okay. that I look for in in the early years. Um, and obviously, you know, they can have co-occurring conditions and often they do with anxiety, but you've got to work out, is the anxiety uh, the key diagnostic the thing here is the driver? Yeah. Why are they having difficulties going out socially? Yeah. Why are they feeling like they might need to have a drink to go out or those sorts of yeah. things? Yeah. And then that might be underpinned by autism. Yeah.
talk about uh, camouflaging in just a second. I really want to spend a bit of time on that, but I just want to go back for a second and talk about uh, training for autism assessment, you know. Um, it seems to be a bit of a thing. And, uh, yeah, I look on your face, tells me it's mm-hmm. a bit of a thing. So do I need to ask any more questions or can you just... Yeah, I've got some no, thoughts around that. I do have a lot of thoughts around that. In fact, we went to a diagnostic forum that was held by the assistant minister and, you know, there was 40 people in the room, 40 different ideas oh, about great. how it needs to be done. Um, and I'm not quite sure um, where that's landed. South Australia used to be, I think, um, quite good in the fact that we were the gatekeepers of diagnosticians. Mm. So in order to be able to diagnose and be eligible for services with our key body, which was Autism SA, you need to undergo the diagnostic training through Autism SA. They opened the door a little bit and allowed me to do some of the training. Very, very dangerous thing to do, wasn't <laughs> it? <laughs> but I only ever trained people. And, if, and what happened was when I'd done the training, they then went back to Autism SA and did some diagnostic, did a diagnostic assessment there and it was signed off. And then on the Autism SA website, there was a list of registered yes. diagnosticians. So that's always been the case. But of course, NDIS are a national body Mm -hmm. they didn't require Mm -hmm. the people to be ticked off and so we sort of become a bit more like the other states where anyone who feels comfortable can go ahead and do a diagnosis Mm -hmm. um so you know in in some states you might have a pediatrician that's got no formal training in that or a psychiatrist just writing three three lines saying they've got autism and then bang okay so help me out here uh i can see that you think that's a problem um, I do. yeah and uh, and i'm going to just take a, a different perspective for the sake of the discussion and do well we all went we went to uni did a lot of education and some of us went into mental health and learned to diagnose and some of us learned to diagnose and various training what's the difference between those diagnostic skills that we might have and diagnostic diagnostic skills around autism yeah, look, I think, but if you were training in a... I, look, I get very concerned if I see a psychologist that says I can treat anxiety, eating disorders, depression. You know, Everything. they have the whole plethora yeah, down yeah, there I and I do workplace injury. You know, I look at that and I think, really, yeah. can you? <laughs> yes, I, indeed. Like, so I think it's important you stay in your lane. Yes. So I'm not saying that you necessarily have to go through the formal training, but certainly I would anticipate... I. If, if it's for me, if it's something else, like I told you with the eating disorder, I won't touch it yes. because I don't feel like that's my space. Mm-hmm. So I really, I, I know autism and I feel like I know autism well. I've, you know, got lived experience for 30 years. I'm not autistic myself, but I've been around autistic people yes. for a long time. Yes. So I feel like I know that. But if there's something else going on, like trauma or in addition to the autism, I will refer out and ask them to see someone else. So I think it's really important that... Um, it's not also clinicians doing the diagnoses, it's also um, self-diagnosis. Um, I really want to come on to that, but I'm just going to step yep. back a sec okay. before we embrace that one, and then we will get the camouflage. Yep. Um, in terms of ARPA, I guess they would consider this uh, working within your scope. Yes. So that if you, that would be fair, or not? So yes. if you, you know, if you consider that you have the skills that, mm-hmm. and and perhaps have done some training, additional training, or have not, but have upskilled oneself, mm-hmm. then it might be considered to be within one's professional scope of yes. practice. Would that absolutely. be reasonable? Absolutely. I think that's absolutely reasonable. And um, I was involved in a in an opera case, and I can talk about this because obviously they get published on the website. Yes, indeed. Um, it wasn't in this stage, but 
the paediatrician, no, it was a psychiatrist, had diagnosed the young person, a two-year-old person uh, with autism, autism spectrum disorder, had written three lines pretty much saying that they met the criteria. Um, they'd then gone to the psychologist for a second opinion. The psychologist had done a, a, a very detailed report addressing all of the DSM-5 criteria mm -hmm. and, with, and where he thought that, that they were met um, and presented that report did a test of adaptive functioning, I think it was the Vineland, and um, and then the someone got a copy of this report, was not happy, reported this psychologist oh. who's been working in the field of autism for 20 years to oh. APRA and said no formal tests were used to do this and oh, therefore okay. this is not a valid assessment I or whatever. See. And I sort of thought, we obviously hold them, you know, to, to, the psychiatrists can do it, but yes. they weren't reported. Right. And this psychologist, it was a very good report, and I had no issues with the report. I thought it was very clear from the report, reading this report, that, you know, I haven't met the child, but it, uh, the observations were very good. Um, the accounts, they got information from multiple sources, mm. and I thought it was a very good report. So I felt a bit disappointed, but it also made me think, should we have some standard... Um, assessments mm. that we use just to, to validate our own observations and clinical impression. Um, now we don't, there's just been the, the CRC have re um, released national guidelines around autism assessment. They don't go that far, they talk more about who can do oh, it, right? but they don't say what should actually be done, what tools should mm. be done. They suggest that a capacity assessment should be done first mm -hmm. and then the diagnostic mm. assessment. That's interesting. Um, it is interesting because I don't know how that's going to actually work out because it means sort of seeing an OT or someone first before they go down the diagnostic So the ABAS or the vinyl wouldn't be sufficient? Well, um, it, it's more about the medical model as well, um, ruling out medical stuff, which I think is really important. You want to, you know, if a child's coming to see you okay. uh, and they can't speak, you want to rule out any medical reasons for that first. So it's more of an evaluation of a holistic medical functional type of thing yeah. but logistically how that will occur unless it's in the, one of the child assessment teams I don't necessarily know how that will work but I am involved in some clinical trials and in these clinical trials which are worldwide we've all had to re-undergo training so I had to do ADOS training again which I've done many oh, times right. yeah. and I had to meet reliability with the clinicians in the US and that took actually several times for us to get to Real competency to, to get competency yeah. again um, we were all trained in the ABI and, and various tools where we all had to be at you know reliability yeah, good on you and that was good for me because yes. you sort of think when you work independently, maybe your benchmark changes. Mm -hmm. And I'd like to see a little bit more of that, a little bit more accountability in the diagnosis because some of the reports that I read, um, particularly ones that are done online, and in fact I was talking to some judges mm. at a forum just recently about whether they will accept online assessments mm. um, of autism, um, but there weren't a lot of behavioural observations there wasn't information from other sources and there was no real early developmental history. Now, I'm sorry, autism is a, a pervasive developmental disorder of childhood and it might manifest itself more obviously as the child progresses, but these behaviours need to be present in... It used to be in the old DSM before the age of three, now it's in early childhood. Mm -hmm. So, you know, these symptoms have not suddenly emerged as a 20, 25-year-old yes. yes. and so forth. Yes. So, I think it's in a diagnostic assessment, it's really critical to get that early developmental history. And you're thinking about mostly children in your room, and I have mostly adults in my rooms, but nevertheless, 
um, and it's still possible to get that, mm. it's essential to get mm. that childhood history. I haven't diagnosed a child for years, ah, Lisa. Okay. So, yeah, so oh, okay. I'm, I'm, I'm very much with adults. Okay, cool. Yeah. So I see reports uh, when they seem to have used some sort of, they just, they, which is very different to the way I work, they usually use um, the criteria, the DSM-5 criteria, and just describe underneath each criteria how the client um, meets them, which it, it's just a bit, usually we use kind of tools, psychometric tools and so mm. forth as well. So some reports, they don't seem to use those at all. Is that what you're saying? Yes. That, that's a, is, that a, is that a thing, generally, well, autism assessments? I, I guess... Yes, it has okay. been. It, it is. We were a talking thing. about that before, but yeah, I'm surprised. Yeah. It, it is. It is a bit of a thing because, um, particularly, you know, women, um, the tools might not be sensitive um, to, to to women. Um, okay. And and so yes, okay. it is a bit of a thing of going through that. And as I said, the report that I in this interstate matter, they had not used a formal assessment, um, which. You know, it was an excellent report, yeah. and that was the problem. It was an excellent report. The adaptive functioning was there. It was all so done. it was the Vineland, yeah. so the social difficulties were apparent in the Vineland as well, but they hadn't used an autism-specific tool. So I came back to my group and I said, I don't care what you do and how obvious the autism is, I want you to be using an autism-specific tool. And it seems there's the gap in the, some of the, the... I don't know whether any of the tools... Are any of the tools sensitive to the female... Phenotype, if you like. Well, I, I've got a, a female um, at the moment that, and when I say I haven't seen a child, it's it's it's, it's a child that's come in, an eleven-year-old girl, um, living across different families, mm -hmm. um, and and you know this is um, quite often the case, I guess, that the reporting from various families is different. So you know I've had to go to the school, no. and that's when I would bring in the ADOS as well. Right. But also I don't think the ADOS is that sensitive to to girls to because girls. it's about you know yeah. show us how to make a toothbrush. It's about pretend play. It's about you know and if they if if they're older they've learned to to script those behaviours. So well, lots of um, areas there for development for of new tools, aren't yes. there? That really um, that better identify um, female the female mm. type. We oh, want to talk about uh, let's talk about soft diagnosis. You mm -hmm. brought that up, and I'm keen to hear that because I do see this. You do, I'm sure. People come in saying, "I reckon I've got autism." I've I filled out a, a screening tool on social media or somewhere. I watched a few TikToks, and um, and I think I've got autism. And I don't mean that in a disparaging way, mm -hmm. not at all. I'm quite respectful, but I I find it a I see it as a bit of a problem sometimes because. There's a this is confirmation. They're looking for a confirmation of what they already believe. Some people already believe, and doesn't matter what you ask, you're going to get you know confirmation of that, of of uh, whatever that symptom might be. Uh, I don't know. What are your thoughts about that issue? Look, I think I'm thinking of a, a, a young child years ago that I was diagnosing and at six o'clock in the evening the, the father said to me, are we having a break at all? And I said, um, yeah, we can have a break any time, you know, yeah, yeah. whatever. And he said, it's just that I eat at six. And, <laughs> and then as the progressed on, we were talking very much about the child and he goes, but I did that as a child, but I did that as mm. a child. And his presentation for me was quite classically mm. um, autistic. And so I was working with a speech pathologist at the time. We've gone into another room to discuss 
the, mm. the case after a couple of hours working with the client to see where we needed to go from there. And the dad just walked in, we had the door shut, just walked in and then started talking about various fine grain mm. stuff on the photo and mm. things like that. Yeah. And he said, I'm now thinking that I might have autism. Yes. And now that you've said all this, it makes a lot of sense to me. Mm-hmm. And I, I said to him, like I said, to a lot of people, would it help you to mm-hmm. have that diagnosis? Because from what I've seen, your behaviour is quite consistent with mm-hmm. that. So I think that it's a probably a reasonable thing mm-hmm. to consider. But what's the value in the diagnosis for you? Mm-hmm. And and for some people, it's none, just knowing themselves. And that, that makes sense. Some people feel like to have it validated by a clinician is useful. Mm-hmm. And other people have managed with it their whole life. But um, for various reasons, and you talk about manipulation and things like that that have gone on, mm. a lot of the clients that I see have um, managed very well without a diagnosis mm-hmm. um, but have then found themselves manipulated by someone or found themselves in trouble with the court for various reasons and the diagnosis has been helpful there mm. to understand why yes, they might not have picked up that the, they were being scammed or something along those and i'm not trying to weaponize the diagnosis because i've been accused of that like oh. saying this is a get out of jail free card okay, certainly right. not at okay. all but you know in in some cases where the person there might have been you know there was two bank accounts or two phone numbers it was things that other people that didn't have autism might have picked up or maybe this is a bit dodgy Yes. And our research suggests that people with autism do not pick up dodgy behaviour at the same stages that a non-autistic person might. Yes. And that places them to be vulnerable. So yep. we can go into the court and sort of argue mitigating factor yep. um, in that regard. So I'm not talking, I guess in that example that you gave mm. about the father, mm. you know, I'm thinking that's, you know, that because that's um, totally to be expected and helpful and, you know, as more kids are being... Uh, <clears throat> As autism has been more, it's better known in the community, you know, as a, mm. as a possibility, you're going to get more kids being diagnosed with it and then they the, look at the parents and mm. more apples and trees. Yeah. And and therefore more parents say maybe, well, shivers, I've got it too. And, mm. okay, that's a thing. Um, it's it's kind of more, and that's probably a really small group, you know, but I know that, I know that clinicians... Uh, see some of these people who there's a kind of a pressure on some clinicians Mm. um, to uh, make that diagnosis Mm. when um, they might not think it's helpful but it's quite tricky I remember Mm. I was at the ACPA conference on ADHD and then someone asked this question about ADHD uh, and Sue Spence said well you're not their mother Mm. you know so you know you know she's like she's Mm. she's a character and and so it's true, I mean, not your mother, you've got to be clinically mm. you know, sound in your diagnosis, but I still think there's something going on, maybe in a very small group, where it's, it's quite a pressure perceived to this, a seeking out of the diagnosis. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And this is a concern of mine because I've had um, an autistic person bring in another autistic person as a support person for a diagnosis, and then at the end of it, and this is not just an isolated incident, uh, make reference to the the idea like oh you're one of us now yeah right and it's that in-group identity that yeah yeah, and it it bothered me like if that person hadn't been diagnosed with autism how would they have felt would the other person go oh you're not one of us anymore do you know what i mean Mm. so i think Mm -hmm. that um that that is a bit of a, a a problem that there is a bit of a um a shift whereby you know we're um 
to be included in yes. that group. Yes. That if they get the diagnosis, then they feel a bit more a, a, a part of that or something. Mm. Right, and that's kind of what I'm talking about, mm. and with people, I guess if you're, uh, you're autistic, then it's possible that you felt quite alone and excluded mm. um, from life growing up. Uh, and if you, or if you, if you're not necessarily autistic. But you've just been a person who's been excluded mm. for various reasons, then this might be a way to feel like you're part of something. Yes. And that's great if yes. you're part of something as yes. long as it's really the thing that is, does describe Correct. you. Yeah. Mm. Um, any clues as to how to work with that, Professor Young? <laughs> <laughs> well, look, I think if the diagnosis is important to them, the first thing that I ask when they come in is, why now? Like, yeah, right. why have you come in now for the diagnosis? What's the value of it for you? What are you seeking? Um, because I want to make sure that, and, and you know, I always, when I read reports, that go, I always want to make sure that they haven't, you know, sometimes people say, oh, they've come in you know, looking for an autism diagnosis. Mm. That's, that's not what they're doing. They're coming in for a diagnostic assessment, whether mm. it be um, autism or not. And, you know, there's some, been some people that have wanted their money back, you know, when they didn't get the diagnosis. Mm. Yes. Um, because they've sort of come in for a diagnosis and they haven't got it. Yes, indeed. Um, so that is a, a problematic of why the diagnosis is important to them. Um, because as I say, it doesn't change who you are when you go out. No. Um, and it is a spectrum and you, you might have autistic characteristics, but not enough to meet diagnostic criteria. Um, and some people come in because they, they're, they're wanting the NDIS support um, and without the diagnosis, they won't get that support. Mm. And then if you diagnose level one, no support, they probably won't get support. So, so there's, there's a support? real pressure on clinicians to then, do right. level two, even though the DSM-5 clearly states, DSM-5-TR clearly states that these levels should not determine funding and support and so forth. And they're very poorly operationalised anyway. I was just thinking about that's that. That's really poor. Okay. Um, and that's one of, you know, you talked about diagnoses before. Yes. That's something that I would like to have is some sort of standardised tool that gets at a grip at some degree yes. of impact the autism is having upon them and then funding is based on that not based on someone just arbitrarily going level one level two or level three so is it the case that uh let me get this clear that there isn't clear operationalized definitions of what level one two and three looks like for autism no I mean, they're in there. There's severity levels requiring support, requiring very substantial support. Whatever that means. Yeah, I know. And there's a little bit in it. Yes. But it's not really very clear. There's a there's one table, isn't there? I was yeah. looking at the other day. There's one I'm, table. Mm. Um, okay. And look, I was looking at, you know, the, the tool, one of the tools that we're using in these um, trials, these um, clinical trials that we're doing. And there's 15 items in there that you could actually go through the report and and judge the you know to come to come to some and I don't want to use the word severity level because we don't like that term either but they are severity levels that they refer so to. So in the terms DSM. of preferred word would be from severity impact. levels impacts impact level, level of impact yeah, level of impact. Okay. So um, and I think what I would like to do is um, make clinicians a little bit more accountable with regard to to that so that maybe having um, you know, cross-checking occasionally to go through someone else's report and looking at what severity level they've given and so forth. So we're making sure that not... Because I would say, and I don't know this, the NDIS would have this data, 
But level one is very rarely diagnosed these days. And if you do, quite often you get feedback from the client that they're not happy because they've paid all this money for an assessment and they're not going to get support. So then clinicians are sort of pushed into doing a level two diagnosis. Mm -hmm. um, and the level three is pretty much safe for the old autistic disorder type um, presentation of your intellectually yes, um, right. disabled, um, flapping, you know, the, the typical um, presentation that you have of autism. So, you know, I would say, my guess would probably be the 70, 80% of the people that are being diagnosed at, you know, level two, which does not differentiate um, the range that would be within that label. That's so interesting. We just, it sounds like it's very hit and miss as whether you get, mm. which level you get, uh, whether mm. it's one, two or three, and it's not very clear from the SM5 mm. or... It's very mm. well. Certainly, at the diagnostic forum, there were people that were working with you know supported independent living, and and the, certainly the cases where autism is um, is much more pronounced, and 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 the the client might be needing supervision of two to one because um, they're wow. acting out, they're they're violent, yes. and 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 they need two to one support. And the clinician, those clinicians was were quite angry at a lot of the other clinicians that. Uh, you know, using level two all the time because it's taking away the funding from those people that you know, very severe. You know that right. are, that are certainly. Um, use that word again. Yes, use the but, word. but but you know it it, it is what it is, yeah. and, and they are severe. Yeah. You know they, um, you know people having to go to work in suits, you know, to prevent them being bitten. You know, it, it's a right. tough gig for those um, workers and those families. before I let you go but I, I'm just looking at my notes and I realised I've written something down about numbers and when I, I was reading something this morning in preparation you know that and so I just want to ask you about this and what your thoughts are that you know, a recent article talked about the estimates of autism a bit I've got here one in 69 in the USA and one in 59 in the UK when I read numbers like that I think if you've got that they're that great so mm. is this not a normal distribution you know or are we are there too many people being included in this puddle of folk hmm. with this diagnosis I don't know I don't know. yeah look I think that there is some sentiment around that and and even suggestion of going back to the diagnosis of profound um, um, to recognize the people for whom autism spectrum disorder is having a really profound okay. impact upon their quality of life because we are going into an area where as I said you've got you know very high uh, functioning people who, for the you know, for for whom autism, you know, the Elon Musk of the world, for whom autism is a very positive mm. experience, assuming he does have autism. But you know, and and they, it's a, it's a positive power yeah, know, right. uh, for them. But there's other people for whom it's not. So it doesn't now. When you say you have autism spectrum disorder, it's not as meaningful as it was once when you said you had a child with autistic disorder then we knew what you were okay. talking about okay and now i That's think helpful. we've just broadened the criteria so much that the range is so great when i first started doing research in the area it was three in ten thousand yes then it was one in a thousand and then it was one in 500 and there's yes. even australian data saying that it's as high as one in 39 yeah, I don't know what to do with that. I don't 
let's talk about camouflaging because mm-hmm. I think that's what happens when I with a lot of uh, the the uh, the women the females that I see in my office who I narrow my eyes a bit and think I think this is autism but you're doing this stuff to make you look like you don't have it it's not working very well mm-hmm. but um, I think this is what is what camouflage seems to be a really a really important thing you know um, amongst not just adults but in children as well can you help our listeners understand yeah. a bit more about it yeah we do know that the more someone camouflages the more likely they are to have mental health issues when they get older ah. so we certainly want to make sure that people don't feel the need to camouflage um, but what we need to do is train the non-autistic community to be more accepting of the autistic community in a way so I've been involved recently, and it, it's before Parliament, so it, it, in, um, it's all tabled out there, but a person mm-hmm. who was fired from their position because they had autism. And during that, um, the whole discussions, people were asking the questions about what support this person had yes. had. had. And I was asking the people, asking those questions, what support have you had? What training have you done? You know, we talk about the double empathy because this person had made a few mistakes socially in the work environment, mm-hmm. but no one had pulled that person up oh, on it and said, hey, you can't actually say that. Okay. Well, that's not okay. Yes, right. And he thought it was funny. And because he had a position of power, um, people laughed it off and no one I actually see. said stuff to him. I see. And I think what's really important and, and what I find from most of my clients is they respond really well to that um honesty to say yes. look actually you, you you can't do that um or whatever but it doesn't mean they have to necessarily camouflage we don't want them to do that but it's this we call it the double empathy it's about other people understanding that as well that they can they I might say something like I've got a friend mm. of mine and I tell him I use these stories all the time in fact quite often I'll ring him and say I need some more stuff <laughs> but you know he we've been trying to sell some land and we hadn't and it was quite stressful and he said to me, you really need to sell that land. It's, it's really aged you. <laughs> and I said to him, well, yeah, thank you. well that, that's just rude. And he goes, well, but it's the truth. And I said, I know that's what makes it worse. <laughs> I know he's not, you know, sugar-coated. Yeah, yeah. But I find it funny because I know he's not doing it to be mean or malicious yes. or anything like yes. that. But this friend of mine who yeah. I'm very close to mm. has very few friends because he says things like that and mm. people are offended by it. Mm. Um, but what he's saying is it's not offensive, it's just the truth mm. obviously. But you understand his Absolutely. You understand him. Absolutely. Mm. I understand him. Like one day he rang me and he was in a nursing home. He's a doctor mm. and uh, the sirens were going off and he was having a bit of a meltdown oh, yeah, and I'm right. like just calm down, get out of there, yes, you know, yes. like stuff like that. So, um, And because I know what's going on I can talk to him yes. through it, you know, and yeah. he sees my car and I've got the one without... He goes, oh, you've got the poverty pack. You know, it's, yes. it's funny. It's funny. I like the um, someone empathy thing because hmm. that means that we're working together yeah. and so uh, to understand each other hmm. um, and that means there's an opportunity to say, well, that does, can't really... That's not a great idea to do that because that yeah. upsets people. That's weird here. Yeah. I remember a client years and years ago, actually, where... I don't, I don't even think I thought about autism, but she did some weird stuff in hospital. She was walk, she'd walk along the wall. Mm. Like she sort of just walk along the wall like she mm. was a crab. And I said, you know, don't do that. It makes you look weird. Mm. And she said, oh, that's not, it really is not. Yeah. Don't do that. And yeah. she said, I kind of did it again. Yeah. And, and, and I, had, I didn't even think about autism. And, I, and, and she probably does 
probably is. And but it was just I, yeah. I was very fond and of her, and we yes. had a very good relationship. In the, and yeah. ideally, what we want to do is that someone can walk along there, and we just go, "Oh, that's fine. That's yes. just them." And, yes. And accept. Well, him. except there was in a psychiatric inpatient yeah. unit, which would always make you look a bit strange. Absolutely. Like people, so, but, but fair but, enough. But what we want to go for is that we actually accept that that's you know what a person is and that's you know and be accepting of that but you're right there are um situations where a person is in the and they might be considered to be weird or whatever and therefore they feel the need to camouflage and we obviously want to minimize the the cases where that is the case but there are times where they will have to um behave and 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 saying that you know we all have an idea where we camouflage yeah right as i was going to ask so so i guess um you know, I sometimes have a potty mouth, but I haven't used it today. Well do you know, done, like, I, thank you. Um, <laughs> it's been, I've had a bit of strength. But, you know, um, I, I'm careful of where I, when I speak to my yes. mother, I speak differently yes. to what I might to my children we all do and this. so forth. We, have, we play a role. We, we play a role. So I guess at work, what sometimes we need to do is, is teach people to play that role that yes. many of us are playing mm. um, that might not be intuitive yes. for them. Mm. So the skills to be able to play that role, but not feeling like they have to play that role all the time. And I guess there's the point in there somewhere where um, camouflaging becomes like a normal thing to like a role yeah. play that we everybody does in the yeah. community, and we, just so we have because we have to get along. Yes. So we need to need to uh, be restrained sometimes in our behaviour because we need to get along. Mm. Is that Mm, absolutely like one of my clients a female client and she's funny she always questions the diagnosis and we laugh about it because when I first diagnosed her um it was her partner had heard me speak and then realized oh this is you know my partner oh. and and she's quite comfortable telling stories about her as well but um she's very classically autistic in 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 fact the probably the male presentation the lining up the, okay, the yeah, arrangements yeah. The, the resistance to change all of those sorts of things and i was talking to her about in social situations it's really important to try to ask questions of the other person mm-hmm. you know most of us don't really you know we might not yes. care necessarily but we do <laughs> you say something then they say something Social and that reciprocity, reciprocity yeah, of the communication right. and um and she said she was leaving to come and see me and this person was and talked to her about mm. something, and she goes, oh, "Look, I've really got to go after some time." But she goes, "But I'm going to tell my psychologist about this conversation because I've asked about five questions, and I don't give a shit." But I've listened, <laughs> and so she's proud. going to be so proud of me when I came in. And when she came to me, I said, "You didn't really say that." Did you? And she said, "Yeah, I did." She goes, "No, you probably didn't need to tell her that." That's the next bit me. of learning. That's the next bit yeah, of learning. Yeah. But it was, and she goes, "Oh, I need to go back and apologize." I said, "No, but if that person knows you're autistic." You yeah, know, they might have fun with it as well. Yeah. And as I said, it's not trying to use it as an excuse, but it's a bit of that mutual understanding. Fantastic. There's one question I want to ask before I wrap up, and that's about parenting um, as as a mo- you know, a mother, as a, a woman and mother. Uh, I see very few resources in around to help my autistic mums with some of the things that they struggle with with their little ones. Uh any suggestions because I just I really I was a loss trying yes. to find things and, and I think there's a even that's it's a bit of a um a tricky question to ask because people some people would say well why do you need anything specific any you know specific techniques it's mm. just the same sort of thing mothering is mothering mm. but I don't I don't think so I, I see autistic mums struggling with sensory issues and struggling with communication and 
and social reciprocity with their kids. Mm. So I this is what I see in yeah. my, on Look, my office. What do you think? It's a really interesting um, phenomenon because back in the 1960s, there was a guy called Bruno Bettelheim who talked about the refrigerated mother and that um, he blamed autism on this refrigerated mother, which, of course, we know is... Horrible term. Absolutely horrible <laughs> term. And it wasn't until Bernard Rimlin stuff came out that we realised that it was a genetic condition and, and, and so forth. But um, what, what I think Bruno Bettelheim was seeing was difficulties with interacting between either the parent having autism or the child having autism. Yes, yes. And, and those skills were, you know, and, and obviously blamed the parent for it, which wasn't the case. Now, we've got this program which is being released and piloted in South Australia called mm. the Inklings Program, which mm. was just released. I heard on the radio. Yeah, and, and now that's unfortunately got the backlash um, that the Bruno Bettelheim stuff saying, oh, we're going back to the day of refrigerated mothers because we're blaming the, the, oh, the parents by trying okay. to train the parents to interact with the ch children. So I'm just saying that as a qualification okay. that we're not saying that... Um, that they're necessarily doing anything wrong, but we can all benefit from learning how to interact with our child and also, um, you know, give them skills. So I think that's um, something that we can sort of work off. What are what are the difficulties with social interaction? What are the the issues that you're having? Is it because you're talking about the parent having autism? As I am the child. I'm, well, because I'm working with the mum. Yeah. And, and sometimes it can be both. Well, too, actually, it's, I'm yeah. thinking I'm probably almost yes. certainly, but um, it's a bit, well, my understanding so far, I'm a bit little, she's only yeah. not quite two, but yes. I think it's all shifting, isn't it? Yes. Um, I know she's struggling. Yeah. And, and I would say to her, this is your autism, you know, and yes. she says, I'm trying to find her resources and we're trying to work together for her to tolerate the little one's probable autism. And, what, and I just can't. Yeah. Look, I mean, and it, 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 yeah. absolutely, and the resources are limited, and it's about what sort of strategies can be, you know, can, and also, I guess, given the parent permission to be able to go, I need headphones on for a minute. Yeah, absolutely, that's stuff we've um, just recently Yeah, done. I need to be able to excuse myself from that situation, or I need to say, look, I can't deal with the shower situation. Is there a partner that can be doing that? And that's, you know, when NDA support could come in to, to help with the, mm. with the specific things that that person is is struggling with because of their autism, mm, um, and you know, and and that's what I want to say. It's okay to say actually I can't cope with this. Yes. Um, and and also I also say to parents one of the key things I always say is you know work on the thing of the path of least resistance. So if there's things that they're doing and it's okay and it's not bothering you, but you know let that one go mm. and let's work out what are the really things that we need to you know what's the hierarchy here? Mm. What do we need what's, to address yeah. that's causing you? the stress What's that we make... can get you that yeah, right yeah um and you know i've just put together a, a, a thing for one autistic person and that's on wednesdays at work um they have no email contact they have no personal contact that's their day whereby they just do their work yeah so the workplace know that but with that person having that break it enables them to be more functional in the rest of the week, if that makes sense. So the workplace know that that person's non-compatible during that mm. time. Um, so having um, those sorts of allowances that they sort of, or strategies that they might be able to use that allows them to recharge their batteries, their social batteries to yeah, get ready idea. so they can, you know, enjoy the rest of their life and in, enjoy their children. I'm going to squeeze one more question in, which is, uh, before I wrap up, um, which is about 
research on the ageing autistic brain, if there's such a thing. I don't know. Is there any research in that area? I know there's some research around ADHD, mm. and I'm wondering whether that's a thing. Yeah, look, no. I'm not really aware of it. One thing that I do notice, and this is anecdotal, yeah. is that as people um, age, yeah. um, they develop a lot more autistic characteristics, and I don't really know why that is. They often become, it might be the, the horse and the cart, they might become more socially isolated because their friends drop oh, off yeah, and right. things like that, yeah. which might lead to more rigidity and more certainty around, you know, what time things are going to happen, and 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 so I, I see in older people a lot of uh, behaviours. You mean older than us, of course. A lot older than yes, us, definitely. So yes, yes, I'm talking about our parents' generation. <laughs> of course, thank you. Um, you know, in their eighties, but seventies and eighties, but even no, even I think people in their sixties oh. <laughs> um, become a bit more rigid. Yes. You know, um, about where they sit at the dinner table or what restaurants they might go to, they don't really embrace change. Yeah. Yeah. As you get older, yeah, um, right. and and so I see that. So whether autism becomes more pronounced as people get older, I just don't know. Don't, don't know. I think look, I suspect that, mm. that this is one of the questions that's going to be asked in mm. future. You know, and more greater research around it. It's a bit early for I guess to give in the change. Now this is an opportunity to plug trainings, any recent books, books you're coming out, any, you know, massive grants you've got you want to share with listeners, please feel free. Um, no, I... I'm we'll put it on the website, we'll put it on the, yeah. on the Facebook page. No, um, no, I mean, we're publishing all the time yeah. in the area of autism and crime mostly. We're okay, doing some yeah. studies. The one thing I would be interested in is we're looking for little people under the age of three that might think, or might not, doesn't matter, um, that their child... Um, is not developing the way they might expect. And we're running free um, screening up at Flinders mm-hmm. uh, for that, where we look Great. at um, so forth. So um, yeah, if they want to get in touch with us involved in our research, we'd be more than welcome. And uh, we'll make sure that we pop your details uh, on the, the uh, Facebook page and on the show notes, you'll see that as well. So, well, look, thank you so much for your time, letting me pick your brains and enter into some you know, some potentially con- uh, controversial areas. Um, I am trusting that most of our listeners will be very respectful of all of that. Yeah, I think the most important is that everyone's got different opinions mm. um, and um, and I want to be respectful. I've worked, you know, as I said, a lot of my best friends have autism or are autistic yes, and I'll yes. refer to them however they want yes, to be referred indeed. and just recognise that, um, you know, we all got different and if we can work together, together, I think that's the most important that's thing. Right. And not us versus them. Mm. Thank you very much for your time, Dr. Um, Dr. Professor Young. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks for listening, everybody. I really hope you found this podcast uh, interesting and educational. I certainly learned a lot. Be sure to check out our Facebook page where we'll post information about Robin's books and provide the contact details for the studies that she mentions uh, in South Australia. If you like the show, be sure to give us a uh, five-star rating. It helps other people find and enjoy the show. Until next time, it's bye-bye for now.